Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Authors Who Lead. I'm your host, Asul Taronis, and I'm so glad that you're able to join us in today's conversation. Today, I have a dear friend who is going to talk to us about his book. His name is Jerry. He's actually a Scot born and raised in Glasgow, but he has made his way to New York City. And we our paths crossed when we met at FlynnCon, which is Pat Flynn's conference. And it was a just a ch- choice meeting in the hall on our way back to the event. And I think I felt like the universe collided at that time. Now, he, he lives there in New York with his beautiful wife and his daughter, but he also has three total of three children that uh, live abroad. And what's incredible is Jerry's led um, some of his marketing skills and some of the biggest retail brands on both sides of the Atlantic and has over a 35-year career. And perhaps you've even been his customer. And as a marketer, the art of writing and communication has always been an important part to him but his love for music that has been his real passion. And he's an avid listener of all this eclectic palette, collector, a singer, a gig goer, all these things. And he has had this incredible constant thing of music supporting his life. His book reflects that. Uh, We're going to talk about his book and you may find yourself a uh, guided practice to never fearing death again. And in these times, it's so useful. Jerry, welcome to the show. Azul, thank you so much for having me. It feels feels circular now that we're almost a year on from San Diego and here we are with almost a, a book and, you know, ready to go. Right. It, it was incredible. So we, what were you thinking? So we were just passing in the hallway and you stopped me to say, I, I think I want to write a book. And of course, when anyone says that, it's I stop in my tracks. But what was it inside of you that prompted you to want to write a, your story? This, this, this book reflects your story, your your experience, and what was it that made you feel like this was the time you should start it? So a, a couple of things, I think. One, I, I, never, re- I never really imagined this would be a path for me. But my, in my career in marketing, you spend a lot of time thinking about words and copy and message and communication. And, you know, and so that's been a kind of constant companion for me for 30 odd years in my, in my marketing career. And so, but I'd never really got to the point where I thought I would write anything down. I always felt that it would be in song or um, in words of a song because music was also, you know, was a, a bigger influence on me in terms of what I would choose to do in my own time. Like this, like you said, the serendipitous meeting of the kind of chain of events that led to you and I meeting you quickly, but also the feedback I got whenever I told friends, family, you know, the full story of what happened when I was ill five years ago. Everybody was, was kind of blown away by it, you know, and this, you know, and the, the sort of universal reaction was, you need to write this down. And I always laughed that off because I always thought, well, yeah, that's right. Okay. Good idea. You know, but, but I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I never really took it seriously until meeting you and even, you know, even that kind of 15 minute kind of hallway chat you know, kind of gave me the confidence both and the wherewithal, frankly, you know, that somebody could help me do this. Because I felt, you know, mountainous to be able to try and do it on your own or even where to start. You know, and so I thought, you know, having met you, connected to you right away and then felt like you could help me find out if this is a book or if it's not, 
you know, and, and kind of get over those sort of personal doubts and insecurities about is my story even worth telling? Right. It, was, it, was a, it was a mashup of all of those things, really. Right. You know, and I think if, if anyone's listening here is thinking about writing a book, those are feelings they probably feel too. Like, is this even worth writing? Do I have it in me? Can I do it? Is it like, who will care? Those are all real feelings that most writers feel, but most of us think that the other writers aren't thinking and feeling this. They're thinking, well, they must be good writers. They must be confident. And what I found is some of the most reluctant writers, for lack of a better word, tend to be the best authors because they show up on the page as their sort of rickety, unsure self, which is vulnerable and true and honest. And they don't write them, themselves out of the book. They write themselves directly into it. And I think, I think what's important to mention is that it doesn't disappear right away either. It doesn't really go away ever, actually. You know, so the, the point is that that doubt and those questions will be with you. And I think, not to jump to the process too quickly, but I think it can help you, to your point, it can help you with the process if you allow them to be positive thoughts and really questioning what is different about your story or why, why does it matter and, and keep that question front and center as you write, then I think it leads you to a better place. Right. Now, you talked about whether or not people would you know, want to read this and stuff. Your, your story is quite personal. In fact, the, the great thing about your, your book is it weaves music into it, which we're trying to figure out how does music play in here is such a big part of your, your personal journey to have music be like the playlist of your life. You can attribute to songs that you've connected with over your life. And so your title even comes from a song lyric. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the song lyric and why it means so much for you. So, yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always been this way. And, you know, and I think there is a, there is a real condition called synesthesia, which, you know, can be found in many different walks of life. And really what it is, is that how some people view certain aspects could be art, could be, you, you know, it could be any sort of form of stimulus, but actually in some people's brains it's translated into another format or another substrate or another way of thinking about it. And music has always been sort of more complementary than synesthesia to me, but has always been there in terms of as I've gone through my life, that there's always been songs that have captured the moments or connected to me in moments of both sort of ups and downs, frankly, you know, where, where the, it's kind of nursed me, but it's also, you know, spurred me on to achieve some of the things that I've achieved. And so where the title of the book came from was when I was in ICU, and which is the start of the story, and I realized I was in real trouble. The song that kept playing in my head was Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime which starts with the sort of, and you may find yourself, which is obviously the first few lines taken for the title of the book. But also at the end of that first uh, verse, it asks the question, well, how did I get here? And that was really what was, you know, when you're sitting in a hospital bed and you're unsure of what's going to happen next and the doctors around you have no idea what's wrong with you, then how did I get here is really one of those sort of crossroad moments and you kind of, what's going to happen next? And that's really where the story starts and kind of flows from there. Yeah. Let's start there then. So the, the fateful night in December that you describe in your book, uh, 2014, and when you're, you're not sure what's going on, you're lying in your bed, you're so many things are probably going through your brain, but walk us through briefly, like what, what was happening? So you get to paint a picture. I mean, of course I can dive into the book to read the details, but you know, you ended up in the hospital. What was going on? What were you thinking? 
when sort of like some of this devastating news kind of came to you? Well, there, there was so there was a there was a number of kind of steps, I guess, that kind of formed the shape of that night, and then over the next twenty four forty eight hours, in terms of how it really manifested itself, I'd had a, a sort of you know routine knee surgery on the Wednesday. You know, this was a, it all happened on a Thursday night into Friday, and this was a the Wednesday I had a routine knee surgery, and so I was already sort of bedridden and 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 kind of recovering from that, and there was no reason to believe even now, that that had anything to do with what happened subsequently. But then, as a, so that was Wednesday morning. By Thursday night, I was in this sort of feverish state where my temperature was swinging violently from being like desert hot to tundra cold, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and not really in any control. You know, and this is the week before Christmas, so there's a bunch of stuff going on with the family. My wife's a lawyer. She was in the middle of a deal, so there was a bunch of stuff going on. You know, so really, I mean, as always, these things have an inappropriate timing, you know, and there's no good time for them to arrive, I'm sure, but, but you know, but there are worse times for it to arrive, and this seemed to be it. And Frances, my daughter, was only one, and she was, she was trouble, you know, so she was problematic as a child. And not, not in any, any other way other one-year-olds aren't. they just, like, up all night and all of that sort of stuff, you know. And so, you know, and where it really started to kind of hit home was... My wife was in the other room and we were in a New York apartment, so it's not a big space by any, you know, by any stretch, but she could hear me like violently chittering, you know, like making this sort of really sort of over dramatic noise, which I talk about her personality trait and how she treated that in the book, which always makes me laugh because it's incredibly honest and I'm not entirely sure how she's going to react to when she's <laughs> it in print. <laughs> but the, um, but I have this, you know, the fear and the sense that it created was I was out of control. I'd lost control of my body. My body was doing whatever it was being directed to do by primarily a fever is what it was determined to be in the first instance. And so when we kind of got through the, the sort of how, what we, what we're going to do, we're going to go to ER. And she, my wife thought we would get a cab to the ER because it's only 10 blocks south of where we live. And I was in the, in my, in my bed and I didn't think I could get to the door of the, the bedroom door, which was, mm. you know, so there's a real moment there where you kind of go, oh, this is, I've never felt like this. You know, and I don't mean man flu stuff. I mean like debilitated, like I'm not sure I can get my head off the pillow or if my legs will work or if I can control the, sh- the violent shaking that's going on in my body enough for me to do anything. And so, you know, so, and then the journey to the hospital, admission, you know, and even then when I remember because you have these moments of realization. And so when the admissions guy comes over to admit me when I'm in ER and it's, you know, it's ICU forms that that he talks about and I see, I'm like, I had two questions. One, wait, I'm getting admitted? Because it never crossed my mind for a minute I was staying, even though I was in bad shape. And the second thought was, why you put me in ICU? What, you know, and so, so all of these things start to aggregate and, you know, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is, this is trouble, you know, and, I, and now I'm in real trouble. And I could tell by their reaction to the medical staff reaction that, yeah, this is, we haven't seen this and we don't know what it is and we, we, we're going to take you up there, but we're not really sure what's going to happen next. Yeah. So that must have been a terrifying moment to realize like that this is nothing I've experienced and obviously this is nothing they've experienced and they're rushing me to the most intensive place you could be in in a hospital without any knowledge about what's happening. And some of the most amazing parts about the book is that you start talking about, you know, your observe observations and the things you're talking about. And each of the chapters have our tracks, which is really great. You know, you, you name 
the track, you named, you know, quote from a song. As you're writing this, so you're, you're being wheeled into ICU. What's the prognosis? What do they say? What do they tell you is going on here? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sweating violently. So clearly there's a fever at play. The reason for mentioning the knee surgery is because for about 24 hours, it was a complete red herring because they assumed that I had an infection from the knee surgery and that's what was causing the condition. Now, it, it frankly wasn't. It may not have helped, but it certainly wasn't the root cause. And so, you know, so they spent a kind of frustrate. I mean, they have to rule it out because the, because there's nothing to rule in yet, right? Mm-hmm. So they're having to go through their procedures and their processes and all of all of that good stuff. My internal temperature was up at 107. So mm-hmm. we so you know which is which is real danger stuff. And I didn't know that. I mentioned that in the book actually. I didn't actually know what the human body could survive. And it's, the truth is, it's somewhere between 108 and 109. So we're knocking on the door there of you know like the max. And um, you know, and so whilst they were suitably worried about that. You know, the, the protocols that I guess they follow, and I've never really thought about it before then or really since, actually, is that they have to go through an elimination process to try and work out what to do. So they put me on a a, a fairly general sort of antibiotic to try and treat whatever, you know, without really knowing specifically, but couldn't give me any specific drugs or medication or help because they didn't have a, a, a prognosis of what was actually going on with my body. So that, you know, so that, you know, so you have this kind of, a number of factors happening. One, you end up in a very serious spot. Two, you know, they are basically, you know, you're not allowed to leave the bed. You know, you get wired up. There's heart monitors and there's temperature, you know, all the bells and whistles and buttons and, you know, everything you associate with TV and movies is is in play, you know. And so, so you're completely sort of compromised and yet you've still got a crew of people. I don't know how many people came and went in total, but it was a lot. Um, still, you know, best brains in that hospital trying to work out what exactly was going on. And, and, you know, and so the doubt, the fear, you know, all of these things. And of course, you've got so much time on your hands because there's nothing happening, you know, other than mm. blood being taken or blood pressure or what, you know, or and another opinion coming in. There's really nothing, you know, there's nothing to occupy your mind that can take you away from it. Apart from, you know, I, I use music as an escape during that as well, actually, where I would just plug my iPod in just to try and kind of like give myself some some release from the pressure that we could feel. And then, the other, of course, the other thing is you're completely on your own. So ICU, quite rightly, has real strict regulations about who's allowed in and who's not allowed in. And there's no children allowed in. So my wife couldn't come up and see me until there such times as she had somebody to cover and look after Francis. And we don't have anybody that lives in the city, family-wise, that could you would automatically pick up the phone and be there in five minutes. We you know, we would have to, you know, lean on friendships and and you know and and, and other family members from New Jersey and stuff like that. So it was always going to take time for that to play out. So you're completely isolated, you're on your own and you've got all of this doubt and fear. So it was quite a harrowing sort of time and I found that, you know, just to talk about the writing process, that actually reliving it when I was writing it was really quite cathartic in some senses, but really quite stark in others in the sense that it put me right back there. You know, the, the sort of vivid images I had in my head that I thought had gone were actually just sat there in the recesses of my mind somewhere. And as I wrote the words, these pictures were flying through my head and these songs were coming back to me. And it really kind of completed the picture and helped the process, actually, to, for me to be able to, I think, I will hope, tell a fairly compelling story. Right. 
the, one of the main principles, obviously, it's in the subtitle about practicing death. One of the moments where we first talked about your book, you described to me looking down on the traffic in Manhattan and thinking or longing for, God, if I could just be back in traffic again. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about how that, how that moment and the notion of practicing death has helped shape the way you think about things now. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, and, and, and as you know, because we talked about this a lot over the last year, but I'm very, I want to make sure I'm respectful of this topic because people, you know, some readers will have, some listeners will have lost people and they won't have the privilege that I got, which was to basically practice death and not actually die. So, you know, so that's been in my mind the whole time. But this idea of when you find yourself compromised and alone, and I remember sitting on the window ledge of my ICU room when nobody was looking, I kind of moved over there. And um, I was looking down on the traffic on FDR, which runs, you know, up the east side of the island, for those who don't know New York particularly well. And it's usually jammed. And I would have traded anything in the world to be sat in that traffic jam at that point in time. Yeah. You know, and so this, this, this notion that what you would take for granted or what would frustrate you or irritate you or anger you in your normal walk of life, that actually when faced with a more serious consequence, you can see it for what it is. And yeah. all it is is a delay in your process of getting to where you're going to, you know, and, and at any point in time, you know, looking out that window and, you know, and seeing that, I was like, oh man, I was like, please let me be back in that at some, some point in my life, you know, or have mm -hmm. a life to, to be back. And so the idea of practicing death is that the, all of these things, all of these both, both sort of annoyances like traffic jams or privileges like spending time with your family or, you know, are things you take for granted, like being able to drink water because I was put on total bowel rest. So no water, no food, no nothing for six days. So, you know, so you, all of these things that you take for granted, when they're stripped back, what are you left with? You know, and that's where in discussions with you as we, as we kind of prep to write this, you know, and, and for you, as you help me write, get ready to write this, this notion of, well, actually, those five, six days in ICU, I was practicing dead. And, and to all intents and purposes, everybody else in my life, I was kind of dead because I couldn't communicate. I was incoherent for most of it, frankly. And they couldn't see, feel, or touch me in any way, shape, or form. So I had this sort of almost kind of purgatorial view of the pass through into death. And, but I was afforded two things. One, time to think about it. And two, a passage back, which allowed me to kind of then think about what does that mean for my life and how I want to think about or how I want to prioritize the things in my life in the, in the, in the right way based on my experience. Yeah. What's an amazing thing is it's always true that this notion of death might be here with us. Uh, we just, maybe it's our society, our culture, the Western culture that doesn't like to think about it, talk about it, or believe that it's actually happening or could happen. But the truth is it's always sort of here with us. And the idea of practicing death is really stark because what you're really saying is you need to be practicing life, like live your life as if this is the last, so that you don't mind being in traffic. You actually enjoy sitting in traffic or don't mind the mundane things that, like taking out the trash that maybe drove you crazy. Find joy in it because you'll one day might long for it the way you did when you were sitting in that room. Yeah, there's one day you'll trade for that, believe me. You know, and, and you may not be afforded the luck and blessing that I was, you know, to come back and see it for what it was. And, you know, and I think that, and that's really the idea of practicing death is, you know, and really the idea 
behind the second part of the book outside of telling the story is can the reader use my experience to reflect on that and think about those little niggles and, and nuisance factors in their own life or bigger decisions around, you know, is the balance of their life quite right? You know, and obviously in current climate, you know, we've all been challenged with that to some extent. And so I think the idea is that my story can help the reader, the listener to find a way to evaluate that in the context of, well, what if this was your last day? Right. How would you feel about it now? Right. And I, I think, you know, the fact that you wove this book together with songs as if they were song tracks, as if they were tracks of your life, like moments kind of move forward was really I, quite clever, I thought. Let's talk a little bit about the process of writing the book, because for some people, I don't want to give away everything. They won't, they won't want to read the book, Jerry. We've got to give them some of the good <laughs> stuff, but not everything. So, But let's talk a little bit about, you know, they can read about how you kind of came through it and what you've learned. Obviously, you, you didn't pass into death, so here you are. So they know that at least. But yep. what was the most challenging part during the book writing process? Well, I, I think there's, there's a couple of things. You know, I think, you know, going back to what we talked about at the top, well, you know, your doubt, right? The doubt that this story is worth telling. The doubt that, you know, particularly when I go on to make, you know, to, well, I'm, I'm really offering a, a way for people to evaluate how their life is situated and, and how they've got the balance right or wrong and what and potentially what they can do about that. So, you know, the sort of, you know, the nervousness about uh, do I have a voice for that and should I have a voice for that and is that really what I want to do? And, you know, and, and you can well attest to this that I didn't want this to be preachy in any way. I wanted it to be helpful and I wanted it to be, you know, a guide, you know, and I wanted it to be something that people could lean on. You know, so as you kind of cement that into your thinking and cement those beliefs into your approach, then it definitely helped underpin how I wrote the book. I found it more emotional than I could have ever have imagined. And I think my ability to express what the book was about is much, much clearer now than it was when I started to write it. You know, I think it became, it kind of, the book almost revealed my own story back to me in some ways, even though I was writing it. So it was quite a, a two-way experience rather than just being sort of, you know, one way. You know, I, I didn't, I thought I would get lost in the, the process of, you know, keep telling and picking up and telling it again, you know, and, and kind of making sure it flowed and all the rest of it. Actually, I didn't struggle with that at all because the story was leading me to where it wanted me to go. You know, and the music, the music aspect of it really was really the, I suppose, the, the background, but in the foreground for many, for many chapters where it, there was no doubt in my mind that that was absolutely what was in my head. And, you know, and as I wrote it, you know, so not every song played to me in my head as we went through the story. Some of them are post-applied, but they're post-applied from reference points that I have with those songs don't have to be my favorite songs. Some of them are, but, but they're not all my favorite songs. And so the journey was really quite emotional, cathartic, but really sort of exciting in the sense that every chapter revealed a different aspect to me as I was writing it. And I didn't realize it. And it was and without jumping into the really juicy stuff, I ended up, I found myself to be crying when I was writing one part of it. I won't mm. reveal which part because it's in the book, but but <laughs> I, I, I was actually found tears running down. I, I wasn't even conscious of it particularly. I was writing and I was like, "What's going on here?" And I'm and I'm crying. I'm crying. Yeah. And it was so it was it was as raw as that too, you know. And so it was quite transformative in in the process. 
and the more the more it mattered to me, the more my resolve to keep going and write it and get to the crux of it. You know, the more that resolve built. Right. You know, let's tell people because you you were working full time. It wasn't like you just took a year off to write your book. What was it like? Like how much time would you say you dedicated a week or a day as you were writing your book? And how long did it take you? Because I want people to see, you know, they might think that writing is something you have to lock your way yourself away somewhere. What was the process like for you if you think of it a bit like over the course of time? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, uh, one of these sort of serendipitous things happened as well where I was, you know, made redundant from my, my previous role. And so all of a sudden I had time on my hands. Now I was like, I was also setting up a marketing consultancy. So my own marketing consultancy and, you know, in my own content sort of delivery and, and you know, thinking through what, I, what part I wanted to play as part and parcel of my own journey. So to some extent, I was living the story. So it would be disingenuous to say that I wasn't, you know, I certainly wasn't writing it all of the time. The writing actually didn't take that long in the scheme of things. What takes quite a bit of time is the thinking, you know, and I, what mm-hmm. I found my own personal sort of bent, I guess, was I would find the thoughts flooding to me as I laid my head down at night. So many a night I'd find myself getting back up again and quickly, you know, writing some notes into the computer so that when I picked up the next morning, so I, so I would get up early before everybody else was up in the house and spend a couple hours a day for the period of time that I was writing and write them. And so my last thoughts before I went to sleep were set fresh on the computer when I woke up and it captured, you know, some of the thoughts and some of the ideas and some of the connections that they ended up in the book and some of it didn't, you know, and so it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, unilaterally successful, but that was kind of how it worked for me, you know, so really, you know, really in terms of time, few hours, you know, some days, but that was it. You know, I, I think depending on how the story or what your book is about, I guess will dictate how much, of a demand it puts on you because I was putting myself on a page. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be true to that. I wanted to be honest and, you know, and so some words that I use in the book in terms of how I describe myself, I was, you know, I would struggle with a little bit and say, look, I want to be that honest or that vulnerable or that true to it. And so those are the things I would sleep on and come back to the next day. Right. Now, reflecting now just on the principles in the book, one of the concepts is the smallest gifts are the greatest. What would you say are the the principles of this something like that the smallest gifts are greatest and why do you see it that way now i think you know what you know i've had a, a long career and you know I, I would say a successful career and, and you tend to hold up you know baubles and titles and you know outcomes you know as big big you know as big big markers but the truth is for me when you know when i was in the, the situation I was in when I was in ICU, I never thought about work once and I never thought about money and I never thought about any of those soft trappings. And what I thought about was holding my daughter's hand and seeing my older kids who weren't in the country. And I thought about those things that, that you could take for granted, you know, in a busy day. And I have done, and I have done since, you know, and I talk about that in the book a little bit too, where, you know, you forget that, what's the most important thing for you in any given day? And, you know, and before, before all of coronavirus hit and, and all of this came down, the two things I ruled into my day every day was taking my daughter to school because we take the subway up to the Upper East Side. And so we'd have a subway ride and a little walk between the substation stations where I get to hold her hand and we would chat about whatever seven-year-old nonsense was in our head. And 
when she came in from school, around about four or five, depending on when she came back in, um, I would clear my decks for then so that I could have her 10-minute download just so I could hear everything about her day. And I, I would you know, block those things out so that they would happen and nothing would encroach on them. And, and so it's things like that, you know, so would she miss a day if I didn't take her to school one of the days? Probably not. Her mum would take her, so that'd be fine. But for me, you know, to know that that's intrinsic to every one of my days now and how I think about it, you know, that's been, you know, a big change in my life and my approach. And also, in, and, without, and it's obvious to point to your kids, but, but even friends, you know, I'd, I'd lost touch with so many people that mattered so much to me in my life. And I really vowed to myself to get back in touch and reconnect and to think those relationships through and to give more to those relationships so that they could not only exist, but prosper, even though, you know, most of them are fairly long distance. So, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's, it's changed how I view things, you know, and I, and I had this sort of foolish look that I didn't, I don't have many friends actually, not because I'm antisocial or anything like that. I just didn't see that as a big sort of vehicle for my life. You know, I did, I, I was so focused on my career and I was so driven to kind of get better and, and be a better professional and all of that. I, you know, I, underinvested in some relationships and they, they went away and, and, you know, didn't come to pass the way they could have, you know. And so now I think about that completely differently. And I think about that actually I pride myself in the people I've surrounded myself with since my illness because they are helping me. And I'd gone from this really sort of stubbornly independent view of the world and then moved into this much more, you know, like sharing and, and kind of openness to ask for help and, and look for help. and many different aspects of my life. All right. Jerry, this is such an incredible story. I hope people who are wanting to know what it's like to go through these things and come out the other side with with a more prosperous view to understand what it means to to be a, uh, facing death but never fear it again. And, you know, Jerry's book and you may find yourself is is available. We want to put that in the show notes to let them share there. It's such an honor guiding you through that process. And I appreciate you being here as our guest. Azul, thank you, not just for today, because it's great to come on and talk about it. And we're going full circle, but also thank you for all your support in the process. And if anybody's got a, you know, a notion out there of thinking about writing a book and they've got an idea and they're not really sure how to take the first step, Azul is your man. Oh, Jerry, thank you so much. We appreciate you. And thank you for showing us the way to live a more rich life. Appreciate you, Azul. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here, and we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author.